Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 7, Episode 16. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Our guest on this episode is Nick Molnar, co-founder of Buy Now, Pay Later, Pioneer, Afterpay, now Afterpay co-lead at Block. Started in Australia 2014, grew an international business, 20 million customers, or 20 million accounts in the United States alone, offered by 150,000 merchants globally, sold in 2021 to Jack Dorsey's Square, now known as Block, for a cool $29 billion. You know, Steve, we both have a background in retail store credit cards and finance, and we've been talking about getting a guest to unpack this world for a while, this BNPL world. So I can't think of a better guest or, or a better time. Yeah, the timing is actually really interesting. I'll talk about a couple stats in a second, but I was reflecting on when I first met Nick. I was introduced to him, I, I want to say about four or five years ago. I'm trying to remember what year it was at the big show, which is, uh, of course, coming up in a few weeks uh, yeah. in New York. And I was like, what is this buy now, pay later mm-hmm. thing? And why am I talking to a firm in Australia? Like I was, I was, uh, it was kind of as a favor to, to some friends of mine. And I was kind of a little bit, uh, a little bit confused. Uh, but I then uh, did start to follow what was going on. And obviously quite a lot has happened, uh, since then, not only the, the acquisition at a very nice valuation, uh, but just in general, the growth of buy now, pay later. Uh, some folks that are listening may know that buy now, pay later has been in the news quite a lot in the last 10 days or so because of a story in the Wall Street Journal that talked about the extraordinary growth of buy now, pay later on Black Friday, uh, up mm-hmm. 47% mm-hmm. year over year. Awesome. There was another story that reported that buy now, pay later uh, spending for the month of November, the entire month, was up 17%. So that's certainly quite a lot higher mm-hmm. than overall retail. Now, there is a little bit, and we talk a bit about uh, understanding the risks associated with a buy now, pay later, and specifically how Afterpay handles that. Uh, broadly speaking, there is some rumblings just about uh, potential nervousness yep. that consumers are maxing out on debt, not necessarily specific to buy now, pay later, but you know all forms of mm-hmm, of extending mm-hmm. credit. So we'll see how that plays out. That's the kind of thing that you know until people have to start to pay their bills early next year, we yeah. won't necessarily have a good a good handle on it. Yeah. And Nick did a great job explaining how his system works to help control and help people manage their debt. So anyway, it's a great interview. We'll get to that a bit later. Uh, for now, we got some great news. Uh, we have uh, secured a an exciting new sponsor for the for the show. So for season eight, uh, we renewed, and and we've got a great new sponsor. We're learning all about them now. We'll we'll reveal that quite shortly. Now, I was thinking this week we we may have gone about that all wrong, Steve. I mean, we we put a deck together and we said, here's what we do and here's what we can offer. I think I think we were introduced to a whole new strategy. Uh, from Mr. Musk this week, maybe we should have. Maybe we approached this all wrong. Maybe we should try something different. Yeah, I mean, the genius that is Elon Musk obviously knows a lot about attracting advertisers with the uh, "go fuck yourself" strategy. So, yes, <laughs> that uh, that didn't occur to me as we were going yeah. about this, and yeah, uh, yeah. perhaps that attracts the wrong kind of sponsor. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say so. Um, uh, we will be sharing more information about that shortly. But uh, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, is interesting. You know, we just operate. He well, he operates at a different level than we do. So on a different. Plane, well, that's so. that's that's absolutely true. All right, let's jump into the news of the week. Uh, we've got, we got some kind of what, what, what do you call them? Humble brags, I guess. We've had some great results uh, around um, what you and I do in the industry, and 
and what the podcast is doing. Share share some of that for the for the folks. Well, specific to the podcast, maybe a bunch of people saw that Spotify does this thing where they share a bunch of statistics about performance on their platform in general, but they also share with podcasters how their particular podcast performed. And there were a bunch of stats. They send this really cool uh, video, I guess, or what would you call that? Uh, Interactive flash. Interactive. It looks like flash there. I'm showing my age right there. That's right. Okay, Boomer. So, uh, but anyway, there were quite a lot of stats, including uh, what hobbies and whatnot our listeners have. But I thought the more interesting ones, which is off a pretty good base, is that our followers year over year were up 83%. And the streams of our episodes were up 45% year over year. And prompted by the Spotify stuff, I went and took a look uh, at some of the stats we can get that show our performance across all platforms, so Apple, Google, et cetera. And that showed that our downloads across all platforms were up 49%. So again, off a pretty pretty good base since we've been at this now over three years. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to all of our amazing guests. A little bit of applause the in the background, a little bit of applause. Yeah, yeah. applause the for crowd applause for the goes and wild. Yeah, and the crowd goes wild. Now, uh, I guess we would have one ask, and we, we kind of ask it every now and then, is if you have the opportunity to give us a review. Five-star reviews are helpful to help us sh- share the word because um, it, it just helps us in the, we think, um, in the algorithm and things, places like uh, Apple. So if you have the opportunity... That would be appreciated. Now, I introduced this as news of the week. That's our news of the week. Let's get to the retail news of the week. And of course, the retail news of the week that we're all, the chattering class is all chattering about is uh, the results from Black Friday. Let's do a roundup. What did, what did you see and, and what did you think? Well, I'm always a little hesitant to spend too much time on this because of what I said last week, which is I think a little bit too much gets made uh, about the Black Friday, Cyber Monday or Cyber Week or whatever, <laughs> Holiday Week, all the different things that it gets called. Uh, but, you know, trying to make sense of of how people did and what this might portend for the holiday season and the fourth quarter. Uh, some of the stats we've seen, I mean, online was up in one way of looking at it pretty strongly. Adobe uh, had things up uh, about Eight percent. Salesforce's number was a bit below that, but high single digits. Um, you know, I think you could look at that and say that's a nice increase, just objectively. But it is generally below the overall trend of e-commerce growth over the long term. So it's a little bit hard to completely calibrate that. Uh, Cyber Monday, in particular, was up about uh, I think five percent, and I think we're just generally seeing that Cyber Monday is kind of losing its oomph, I think that's the technical term, losing its oomph uh, Mm -hmm, over mm -hmm. time, primarily because of some of the stuff we talked about last week, but deals tending to be made earlier. So not concentrating as much business on that day in particular, because online was actually up quite strongly on Black Friday, for example. Uh, Reports of store traffic, where that store traffic was up a little bit, a couple different takes on the data there. It looked like sales in brick and mortar stores were up probably one to two percent. So that's not a, exactly too exciting. So I think overall pretty tepid. A um, bunch of stats saying that it looked like the deals were stronger this year than last year, particularly in apparel. Um, one of the things, and I think we touched on this last week, one of the things that makes analyzing this particular Black Friday, Cyber Monday period trickier is that it came quite early in the season uh, because of when Thanksgiving fell Mm -hmm. and with Christmas as a Monday, 
there actually are, I think we also talked about this kind of this dip that we're experiencing right now is we get okay, away from the, the trough promotions. of death as one retailer uh, described <laughs> yes. It to me. Yes. So I expect any, any results we see this week will be pretty, uh, pretty unexciting, but then mm-hmm. we've got really three weekends ahead. Mm-hmm. So normally uh, you wouldn't have this extra weekend in between the black Friday, cyber Monday and Christmas. So I think that's a long way of saying the sales are going to be more back-ended and the trough will be deeper and we probably can't really connect too much from um, the Black Friday, Sunday, Monday performance to how things will ultimately turn out. Yeah, I think uh, I'd echo that, that the story is yet to be told for 2023 holidays. So uh, maybe we'll cover that up in the the new year if we get a bit of insights on that. Uh, Moving on to uh, Shein. So they filed to go public. It's been rumored for a while. Now they've done some kind of secret filing. Like usually you see some information here, but... What's going on with with how they're filing, and and what what do you think they're? Um, I mean, they got a lot of problems. Uh, we're not the biggest fans. I'm not the biggest fan of of the business or the business model. But uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think there's a little bit of misreporting. I think it is always the case that the initial filing is confidential, and then the S one okay. uh, gets gets released. So I think there was just some confusion. Uh, because you don't always know when the process has started. And I think there was some reporting mm. that picked up on the process but made it sound like it was somehow nefarious. I, I don't think that's mm. the case. But but uh, it does appear that they are starting the process to go public. We don't know much about how quickly that will happen. Uh, but I would expect that we will see some information or we'll see the filing uh, fairly quickly unless something goes awry in their plans. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can't. I mean, other like than a Rico charge, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> but like uh, there is like speculation that. that they're looking for perhaps as much as a ninety billion dollar uh, yeah. IPO, which would be I don't know second or third biggest of all time. I think so. Anyway, mm. stay tuned. But Big yes, numbers. I uh, it looks yeah, like this numbers. is happening, and I would expect we will we will get a chance to take a look at how they've been performing and what their outlook is pretty darn quickly. Well, speaking of that uh, part of the world and the factory. China direct model. Timu, uh, some some stats about Timu, which is kind of, I see him as the other side of the coin of, of Xi'an. Both of them are like one and two or three and four or two and three downloaded apps in North America. They surpassed Alibaba in terms of, what is it, in terms of earnings? or, or t- Talk about that. Cause that, uh, that one in terms of their hard. market, uh, in terms of our market value, so uh, while Temu is part of PDD, is the holding company, which is a big e-commerce player, I always mispronounce the parent company's name, so mm-hmm. I'm not even going to try. It's just going to be humiliating. But uh, PDD <laughs> is a publicly traded company yeah, yeah. Uh, of which Temu is part, and they reported very solid earnings, very strong growth. Now, Temu is the big growth driver there mm-hmm. during the past year. And yeah, the uh, the strength of their sales and the strength of their earnings caused their stock to go up, and so they are now more valuable than Alibaba. Now, Alibaba has been on a negative trajectory. So, yeah, yeah, if you would actually yeah. go out and take a look at the chart. You would see uh, PDD going up quite a lot over the past year, and Alibaba going down quite a lot. Yeah. So, whether you know this this is a moment in time, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that this uh, relationship is going to hold forever. But if you look at the prospects and, and the growth trajectory, certainly Temu is on a crazy growth path, whereas yeah. Alibaba's is much more, much more muted at this point. 
Let's talk about RH, one of our favorite stores uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. You've written about them, and and uh, we continue to chat about them. They are open in more stores, uh, and their their stores are not small endeavors. So talk about that. Yeah, we've talked about uh, as you say. We we do like RH quite a lot, even though their recent financial performance hasn't been great, as they've gotten caught up in kind of all the the headwinds of the home business. But I think earlier this year we talked about some of their growth plans which not only included more uh, stores in North America, but in particular, they're starting to step on the gas in terms of international growth. So we may, I think we touched on their, the uh, kind of palatial estate they opened outside of London earlier this mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. Well, they have opened a palatial estate in the bucolic hills of the suburbs of Indianapolis. <laughs> it's probably a little bit different vibe, nothing against uh, Indianapolis. Nothing against Actually, Indianapolis. I've, right? I've spent a fair amount of time there. But uh, yeah, I would, I would uh, unfortunately, because this is an audio format, we can't show you pictures, but I would, mm-hmm. I would suggest that people take a look at some of the uh, aerial photography of the, the new complex state, right whatever there, you want to call it. You, it's not often we tell uh, listeners to go look at the aerial photography of a new store. So right there, that's yes. a bit of a hint of what, we're, what the magnitude yes, of what we're talking it's, about. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Remarkable. And then uh, they also are making a push into Germany with mm-hmm. two new gallery stores. So these are more the still large, but not the mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, estate plan uh, for uh, some of these other um you don't need a concepts. drone to figure out where you are, kind of. Correct, yeah. yes. Uh, <laughs> but yes, the gallery stores uh, just opened in Munich and Dusseldorf. Mm. They've uh, got several more international stores on on the plan. So continuing to grow despite some choppy waters in mm-hmm. terms of their near-term financial performance. So definitely a retailer that uh, is doing things quite, quite creatively and continuing to uh, step on the gas of growth. Let's uh, let's wrap the news with uh, sometimes where we begin. It's a bit of economic uh, news. Um, let's talk about inflation and and uh, how you're thinking about deinflation. Walmart uh, CEO talked about uh, potential deinflation. What's what's going on there? Tap. Let me tap into your your economics background and unpack this for me and the listeners a little bit. What's going on? What's your observations? Well, a couple of things. One is just what was in the news uh, this past week was that the inflation in the U.S is at the lowest level it's been in two years. So that, I would say, generally speaking, is good news. As uh, we've touched on, as many of our listeners will know, inflation has generally been quite a bit higher uh, in the Eurozone in particular and in some other markets. So that still continues to be the case, though also starting to see some progress there. It's just uh, the levels in, for example, the UK, I think, are about twice as high as they are uh in America, mm-hmm. as one example, the the commentary I was just going to make quickly was one of the things I think that is interesting and I think sometimes confusing is this idea of disinflation versus deflation. So mm-hmm. maybe this is mm-hmm. obvious to everybody, but just in case it's not, uh, disinflation no. is the lowering of the rate of inflation, which is what we are seeing. Deflation which, as you mentioned, Walmart um, Walmart CEO Doug McGillan was talking about, is when prices actually come down. So not a slowing of the rate, but an mm. actual lowering of inflation. Now, the reason why this is important, well, first of all, just this idea that we might see deflation in 2024 is, is interesting. Uh, remains to be mm-hmm. seen whether it will happen. There's some other 
negative effects of that if that happens on a broad scale. And of course, we do see this in certain commodities which have a lot of volatility. Um, yeah. You know, gas goes up, gas goes down, eggs. You know, there's there's various commodities where prices have so much volatility that you do, do often see deflation in more normal times, not, not to mention what we've been seeing here in the last few months. But I think the reason why it's important is if even if inflation gets back to say the federal reserve's target of about 2%, the cumulative effect of the last 2 two and a half years is that prices are still way above where they were and generally the water speaking, lines gone up. yeah the water lines correct gone. and generally speaking wages has not have not kept pace so so it's one thing, and it's good if if we get inflation under control. But in terms mm-hmm. of the way it affects consumers, it's still quite significant. So unless we actually start to get deflation, I think we just need to be a little bit careful about assuming, well, like everything is going to be great now that inflation is, you know, under 3% or whatever it, it mm-hmm. might be. So I think that's just one thing to, to keep in mm-hmm. mind. Because one of the things, it's not to get into the politics of it so much, but one of the reasons why there's speculation that Joe Biden doesn't get as much credit for some of the economics is that, yes, inflation is better and the job market is strong. But customers still are like, wow, I'm still paying you know, $30, $40 more a week for groceries than I was paying 18 months ago. And so you know, it's sort of the objective number as opposed to the relative number. So I think this is just going to be part of the conversation as we go into 2024. The other thing, just to kind of bring it back to retail in particular, is as inflation comes down, whether it's the rate of inflation or actual deflation, it's going to make it interesting, just like we've talked about it kind of in the other direction where we say, well, you know, here's a retailer whose comps were up 4%. Well, that's less than inflation during the past year, right? <laughs> now, as we go right, forward, right. if inflation starts to, let's say, get to 2% or even even less, then retailers aren't going to necessarily be able to benefit, uh, in one way of looking at it, from rising mm-hmm. prices. So I think there's going to be kind of this disinflation comp headwind. <laughs> that's mm. a weird phrase. Um, yeah. That's going to start like to become part of the narrative as we get into uh, – you know, the middle of next year, I guess, probably is when it will really start to play out. So, uh, so you not only do you have to try to drive transactions, but, um, you know, to the extent you can maintain your pricing power uh, in, in, the, in the face of, of disinflation or even deflation will be, will be an interesting conversation um, as we try to evaluate what some of these numbers will mean. But we can, you know, we'll get, we'll get through this holiday quarter and then we'll, we'll worry yeah. about the next yeah. quarter. Fascinating stuff. Let's leave it there uh, in terms of the news, and let's get to our interview with Nick from Afterpay at Block. Nick, welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Very good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, it's our pleasure. Where are we finding you this afternoon? I'm currently in sunny Los Angeles. Fantastic. Now, you don't sound like you're from sunny Los Angeles. Where where do you hail from? <laughs> I come from uh, from Sydney in Australia. But I've been in the U.S. for the last few years. Uh, similar territory, L.A. And, and Sydney. Well, listen, uh, we kind of jumped in ahead. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your professional background, and, and what you do for a living. So, look, my, my background uh, is, in, is in retail. My family was in jewelry all my life. Um, 
and, you know, used to grow up uh, visiting and working in my parents' store. Uh, come, you know, first year of university in 2008, my, my mom actually said, you know, Nick, you should, uh, you should sell some jewelry online. Uh, this, mm. this online things, you know, starting to scale. Could be something. Could be something. Yeah. So like, like all sons, I took my mum's advice. Um, and 18 months later, I sold the most jewelry online out of my bedroom at university. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I got started. So, you know, really growing up uh, in, in the retail background, uh, and then tried to become an investment banker, which, uh, fortunately or unfortunately didn't prevail. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, not for everybody, not for and everybody. ended up uh, building Afterpay uh, with with my neighbor at my parents' place who lived across the road from me, which is a fantastic story as well. Well, let's let's talk about that story. Let's tell us about Afterpay. I think it was. I think there's a cluster of this expertise uh, in Australia, is my kind of sense. But talk about Afterpay. What was the spark, uh, the the ignition that set it off, and and talk about the origin of the business, the scope and scale you know, where you are, how you are today. And then uh, if you could, the value that you bring to the retailers who are mostly our listeners. Yeah. Um, there was a couple of really interesting dynamics in, in Australia that I think made it, uh, you know, a bedrock for, you know, what's now known as the buy now, pay later market. Uh, but, you know, I guess my, my story of how kind of I fell into the space was uh, I grew up during the 2008 financial crisis. Um, in 2008, I turned 18 and the world said, you know, don't spend money that you don't have. And so in parallel to selling jewelry online, I was kind of watching these payment trends that were unfolding in the millennial uh, demographic. And something really interesting was happening. Basically, millennials uh, stopped spending money on credit cards. Uh, they all used debit cards and it was very clear in the data. But the question was, was this going to, you know, ultimately prevail and were, were, were millennials going to continue to use uh, debit cards as they as they grew older, and so I watched the data for quite a while. Um, ended up meeting my my uh, my neighbor at my parents' place who lived across the road from me, a gentleman named Anthony Eisen. I met him because I wanted him to help me get an investment banking job. Um, <laughs> what I didn't anticipate was we were going to talk about what is now uh, Afterpay, and I explained what was happening from a debit card perspective, and and uh, and he got it straight away. Um, and if you think about the dynamics of why millennials are using mm-hmm. uh, debit cards, they are because, you know, if 100% of people pay back a credit card on time, uh, the business model doesn't work. And so incentives mm-hmm. are flawed where the preference is for someone to, to not pay back rather than to pay back. And so we wanted to build something that was the opposite uh, of, um, of uh, traditional credit. Uh, we raised our first round of money in August uh, 2015. Uh, and then we actually went public on the Australian Stock Exchange nine months later. Um, so there's not a lot of private capital in Australia. So we, we listed out of necessity. And then uh, five years after after going public, we, we sold the business to, to Block or, you know, previously known as Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was That's now almost two years ago. We closed that transaction. Uh, and we're live in Australia, New Zealand, uh, US, Canada, UK, uh, and really focused on, you know, engaging with uh, this this next generation consumer that has this, you know, distinct debit card preference, and you know, producing value both to consumers and merchants uh, through the network. Well, you've talked about uh, the value to consumers. Let's talk about the value that you bring to retailers. So, for those perhaps not familiar uh, with all the moving parts, explain how uh, BNPL 
works and from the retailer's perspective, why they would choose to uh, work with you? Yeah. So, you know, the, f- the first dynamic in Australia was what I spoke about as to why Afterpay, I think, was, you know, a really great fit was this debit card um, component. The second was really that uh, layaway or as it's known in Australia called layby, layaway was, uh, was really prominent um, and it didn't really function. It was kind of like, you know, I, I put a deposit down, they hold my product, I go and pay for it over time and then I, uh, and then I get the product when I finish paying it off. And so the concept was really familiar to, to retailers and it was, it was clear that if there was something more efficient, it would, you know, help with, uh, with, with storage space and also, you know, driving lifetime value of a consumer. And so we wanted to design something that was the opposite of, of finance. So the way that we built a product was if you're buying an item for $100 Instead of paying $100, the consumer pays four payments of $25 every two weeks. We pay the retailer next day, and then we assume all of the risk. So it's our responsibility uh, for the consumer to pay us back uh, on the due dates in the future. So customer gets the product up front. Uh, uh, we, pay the, we pay the retail straight away and then assume all the potential non-payment risk. Um, it's completely interest-free. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, really we flip the model of traditional credit on its head where we disable someone's account the moment that they're late on one installment, which is, you know, fundamentally the opposite of how traditional credit works. And that's really why, uh, the underlying consumer loves the product as much as they do. And then as, you know, as times progress, we've started to, you know, move into longer duration products. So we recently launched, launched a six and 12 month you know, interest-based repayment solution uh, on orders that are generally over $400. And so really starting to meet our customers where they are and expand the network uh, as, uh, as time progresses. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about those extended uh, payment plans because I remember when I first started hearing about Buy Now, Pay Later, and I think, Michael, you would have similar experience. It felt yeah. a lot like payment-type offers, promotional offers that that retailers had, particularly the big ticket uh, retailers offering these extended payment plans, you know, 0% financing, no payment, you know, th- those kinds of things. Can you just give us a little bit more about what's different or better? Uh, I guess I get it from the consumer perspective. Maybe I don't quite understand it as much from a retailer perspective as, as to why they would change kind of fundamentally the way they've done some of these extended payment plans. Look, it's been, it's actually been really interesting launching in the US because there's quite a bit of nuance for how the US operates that's quite different to, to other parts of the world. Um, so what, what I'd say is I think that I can break down the question into a couple of different components. Um, the first is that historically installments have been for high value transactions. Um, and, and kind of more pervasively in the US, you know, this concept of, a private label credit card is not as prominent in, in most other, in most other markets. And so it's a really interesting nuance to try and navigate. Um, but what we wanted to do was actually, you know, serve customers in mainstream retail, not just in the really high order value. And so, you know, Afterpay's average transaction value is $125. It's not in the like the, the like the really high order value long duration solution, even though historically that's where you know installments with interest have have, have played. Um, and so I remember like back in the day, one of the biggest 
uh, one of the biggest surf retailers came came uh, inbound and they, they, they wanted to launch with Afterpay because they wanted to sell more surfboards. Um, but actually, they were more engaged in selling more, more T-shirts. Um, and so, you know, how can you drive lifetime value of a consumer? It's how do you positive, positively influence the bell curve of, uh, of, of transactions? And so the ability to offer a consumer, you know, who's generally buying these discretionary uh, transactions, um, you know, to ha- how, do we, how do we really engage them in a way that was, that was really different? We wanted to, you know, we started life in primarily fashion and beauty, and then now we've expanded into a variety of different, different verticals. Um, but it was really trying to serve a part of the market that wasn't historically served. And that, that debit card consumer... Uh, has just not used private label credit cards as they've grown uh, grown up and you know entered the workforce and become a significant portion of the retail economy. So you know it is really a fundamentally different consumer. They're spending money. They're spending money differently, and you know we're helping retailers engage engage with that customer uh, in in ways that suits their needs. So I don't want to get too in in the weeds here, but having actually been responsible for a pretty large private label credit card uh, business at, at one point, I, one of the things that made me kind of cringe a bit when I first heard about buy now, pay later, but I think you're starting to touch on it, just the difference in, in consumers, particularly the younger consumer, is when I heard that there were a lot more of these purchases that were going for the lower ticket product, there's part of me that says, well, the credit risk must be much higher because if a consumer is putting a $50 sweater or their groceries or what have you on an installment plan, isn't there adverse selection to that? Or if I'm the retailer, aren't I just incurring cost uh, for something that really isn't incremental. So can you help me kind of under without getting too technical, I guess, or because we'll lose the audience, but help me understand kind of the credit risk dynamics, why that I'm apparently wrong about that adverse selection and or why the retailer is willing to assume the economics, the different kind of economics and working with, with afterpay or other buy now, pay later providers. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, and why don't I start with like why I think it's important and significant, and then I can talk to like the different dynamics of the credit portfolio. Um, so if you looked at, you know, millennial and Gen Z's contribution to the retail economy in 2020, it was about 30% of all retail spend in the US came from millennial and Gen Z consumers. By 2030, that subset of consumers are going to be almost 50% of all retail spend across the world. And so they're spending money different. Um, they're looking for ways to engage with retailers that is fundamentally, you know, uh, the opposite in a lot of instances compared to, to generations prior to them. And they want to, you know, use these solutions that can better, you know, leverage their own their own money and not take out lines of credit. So I think it's I think it's really important because this customer has grow, is growing older. They're, they're reaching their peak spending capacity, and their trends are now becoming, you know, macroeconomic trends because of their importance in the economy. In terms of then like how we manage risk uh, and your question, um, you know, we've really focused on, uh, as I said, we started life in the fashion and beauty ecosystem. We then moved into pet supplies, sporting goods, automotive products, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, really focused on 
on uh, those transactions in, in those particular verticals and then expanding uh, over time. Um, what's, what's quite nuanced in how we manage risk, which I think is often missed, um, and it's subtle but really important, is the moment that a consumer is late on a single installment, they cannot keep shopping on the platform. That is the opposite of how a credit card works, where income is earned as outstanding payments. Uh, Like the longer someone is overdue, the more interest that is incurred, the more a credit card makes its money. Um, And so we wanted to design our product that was the opposite. You know, the, the example I give is if I got caught speeding and the fine was that someone took away my Netflix account, I'd be devastated. But the cost of my Netflix for a month is way cheaper than the cost of a speeding ticket, but I don't want to lose my Netflix account. You know, our consumers love our solution because, it, you know, it has their back. It is what it says it is, and they want to do the right thing uh, by Afterpay. And it means that, you know, our loss rates at the moment sit at, you know, about 1%, uh, which is many, many multiples lower than, than finance books and, you know, like at, at some of the lowest levels that we've seen in recent times. And so we're able to manage... In a, in a cost of living crisis where there's higher interest rates, higher inflation, you know, consumers are really looking for ways that they can manage their money. Uh, we're able to not just serve them at that time and serve them in a way that's genuinely in their favor, but also manage risk uh, in a really effective way. Uh, and and <laughs> I don't know, this is kind of a a broad question perhaps, but uh, it's interesting to me partially because I often study how legacy business model or been studying how legacy business models often fail to respond to more disruptive uh, business models, obviously, such as, as your own it is, is what would be your theory as to why traditional credit players have not been able to, to take advantage of this is such a great opportunity. Obviously there are a lot of significant players now, including yourself that have grown in this space. Why is it that none of the other credit traditional credit providers have, have really made any, any moves into this, this growing segment? I think firstly, it's great to see the movement in, you know, the pay in for space. I think it illustrates that this debit card consumer is looking for, for value. Um, and what you've actually seen uh, is that certain, certain platforms are able to originate new business for partners. And so when a retailer engages with us, yes, they're looking at us for the benefit of uh, splitting a transaction in four, but we also drive a million leads per day from our app to our retail partners. So our, our retailers look at us as a customer acquisition channel to engage with that you know, next generation millennial and Gen Z consumer uh, like they would look at Facebook or Google. And so... Um, that is very different to how, you know, traditional credit card products may, may have worked in the past where it was more about the value of providing someone with, you know, extended lines of credit as opposed to being able to legitimately originate new business. And so you're seeing, you know, many players start to enter the space, but actually the choice that's provided at checkout by retailers are really those that can originate new business for, for partners and act as not just a payment product, but really a marketing channel for those retailers. And I, I think that is kind of like part of what the secret source has been and why you might have seen, you know, certain decisions that have been made uh, strategically to your question of like who's in the space and who's not. So given all this, uh, and you've hinted at it a little bit, I mean, we're in, 
interesting times from a state of the consumer and the state of consumer spending, debt, risks, uh, inflation, some markets up, some down. As you have this unique perspective on global data, talk about uh, what you see from the state of consumers, specifically um, in the U.S. market. Look, we're seeing uh, we're seeing like quite a bit of resilience. Um, it's also it's also uh, difficult for us to like discern because the platform's always growing. You know, like we're growing uh, at some of the fastest levels than than we have in the prior couple of years. I think some of it is demand for buy now pay later today uh, because of the cost of living crisis, because of uh, because of you know inflation, interest rates, etc. It's really yielding more demand for for buy now, pay later and, and for afterpay. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also just seen expansion across a, a wide set of verticals. Um, but when we look at, you know, uh, cash card data, which is, uh, which is also, you know, owned, owned by Block, um, and I'm happy to talk you know, a bit more about the detail of, you know, where we think the strategic opportunity mm-hmm. exists, you know, more broadly, um, and, and Afterpay and Square's data, we're seeing, you know, pr- pretty similar trends uh, that, are, that are occurring and I think what's um, what's really rewarding is you know back to the the question a couple of questions ago is not just a consumer spending but they're actually being really responsible and they're and they're paying back on time. You know, ninety eight percent of afterpays installments in the US were paid back on time, which is you know really ninety eight percent. Wow, ninety eight percent. Well, you've kind of hinted at it. Uh, I guess it leads us to the next question, which is is what is next? I mean, you you had your liquidity moment. Congratulations, you're part of a a big payment processor now. How do these two things come together to one plus one equals three? Yeah, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. I think, you know, it's why I was really encouraged to do, the, to do the deal with Block and why I think there's immense value that can be created. You know, Block is a unique, um, <coughs> a unique business. It has two sides of a network. It has the Square, uh, the Square business, and it also has has Cash App. And so, you know, pretty quickly post uh, transaction closing, we rolled out across the entire Square platform, both online and, and in person and seeing, you know, naturally uh, a, a lot of usage that, that's going through Afterpay as a result of that of that uh, relationship mm-hmm. and, um, and integration. But then more pervasively, you know, it's how do we continue to expand uh, in ca- with Cash App in the US? You know, mm. Cash App... Um, in its latest, you know, uh, quarter had 55 million monthly transacting actives, um, and you know, a significant amount of uh, of of customers use the product each month. And the cash card is, a, you know, a meaningful contributor to the overall retail economy. And so, mm-hmm. to have you know a, a, an app that is one of the you know number one finance app uh, consistently over the past period of time and top ten apps downloaded overall. To give the the retailer an ability to have similar to Afterpay, you know, another another pathway into engaging with this next generation consumer and meeting them where their customer is, I think, is a a really important opportunity. So, you know, we started to roll out Cash App Pay across our retail network, uh, whether it's retailers like uh, Finish Line or Shein or you know DoorDash and others, you know, really seeing incredible results. And so, I feel like as Block, there's a really great set of ingredients that exist strategically uh, mm-hmm. where it has merchants and consumers and, you know, a huge amount of scale on both on both sides. And it kind of goes back to how do we keep building great products that drive incremental value for, for our retailers? And that's where we're resolutely focused. Well, I, I certainly hear growth. What does innovation look like for 2024 for the retailers listening? I mean, you've, you've talked about the expansion of different products. Is there, you know, if I looked at Afterpay five years ago and 
2024? What's what's new and what's exciting? Look, I, I think we're at like a really important juncture. Um, I think there's a lot of great uh, new 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 products that that we can build and are building. But actually, the most important thing we can do over the next 12 months is just serve serve this consumer given the demand that exists for the core product. You know, we're seeing really strong underlying growth of our core existing business. And we want to make sure that we expand into new verticals, continue to build build that presence. You know, if you look at Australia, which was the first market, obviously, that I launched into, the average customer buys from 11 different verticals and shops multiple times per month. The US is, you know, earlier in its life cycle, but is certainly following the exact same trend that we saw in Australia. So we're looking to give more flexibility to our consumers, you know, illustrated by our monthly payments product, our cash app pay solutions. And then from a merchant side, you know, we're really focused on how do we keep driving new business to, to our retailers? How, you know, how does, uh, how does, uh, you know, Afterpay continue to drive a million leads per day? How do we start to engage that, that cash app customer to really partner with our retailers to allow them to meet that next generation consumer and, and, you know, build a relationship with a customer that they might not already have. Uh, and, you know, that, that's our focus over the course of the next four months. Well, Nick, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating story. It's great to see how much success you've had. I'm sure you're going to have a busy few weeks here, but uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to help us learn a little bit more about Buy Now, Pay Later broadly, but in particular, what's going on at Afterpay. I wish you a great holiday season and uh, good luck for 2024. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Anish Melwani, chairman and CEO of LVMH North America. New episodes of Season 7 will show up each and every Tuesday. Be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, and the forthcoming Leader's Leap, Transforming Your Company at the Speed of Disruption, which will be published in March 2024 and is now available for pre-order at book retailers everywhere. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer of a host of series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everyone. <laughs>